had someone tell me that uh, middle grade authors are sort of like middle school kids, whereas YA authors are very much like high school kids. So you get like clicks with YA authors and stuff. Uh, and middle grade are just like throwing things at each other and like completely immature. So that, <laughs> that, that fits. I'm basically a 12 year old boy, like mentally and uh, emotional, uh, sorry, mature wise, maturity wise. Is story themes considered uh, young adult or is that that one's middle grade also, right? Yep. They are all, I even wrote a copy. Uh, yeah, they're all, I didn't realize this when I was, my first series was called Half Upon a Time. Uh, and at the, those characters are all like 15 and 16 because I didn't know there was a difference between YA and middle grade. Uh, and at that time, my editor was like, no, it's just middle grade. We're like, you don't need to change anything. We're just going to like uh, make sure that there's no, at the time she was like, there's no kissing or anything. Uh, that's very much changed, I guess, but um, yeah. And then after that, I guess Barnes and Noble sort of made uh, some sort of declaration that middle grade had to have characters that were 12 or under. Uh, so every one of my characters has been 12 ever since. And otherwise I haven't really changed much in terms of how I'd write. Uh, yeah, it's just sort of, uh, it's, it's a weird distinction, but I know as like a 12 year old myself or even as an eight year old, I was reading, that was in the eighties. So there wasn't like necessarily a lot of books geared for people who sort of wanted to delve into like harder books, but not uh, find things like, uh, I don't know how old you are, but if you've ever read Piers Anthony, oh, um, sure. like some of the stuff in there is probably not great for kids. Uh, at, and I just read it, I blew through his series as a kid having no problems with any of it. Uh, so yeah, I just got into all this like more adult kind of fantasy and stuff. And it was all fine. Like I didn't warp my, well, as far as I know, I didn't warp my brain. <laughs> it was just funny, yeah. Content was why, what made me so such a loyal reader of, of Pierce Anthony at the time. Cause like I knew sooner or later there was, there was gonna be a sexy. <laughs> he never left that out. Well, thank you, Mr. Anthony. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it's, uh, he was one of the authors I wrote to as a kid and was like, hey, I'm, I don't remember how well, how old I was, probably like 10. Uh, and I was like, please write back. And he wrote back like exactly as I would have hoped. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't know how to write back. I can only write forwards. And then he like answered a bunch of my questions and it was just adorable. Uh, it was such a nice experience. Like it was like a handwritten note. It was beautiful. <laughs> uh, and it, it, it was, it meant so much to me that it's like, it's, it, I make sure to write back to everybody I can just because I know how much that meant to me. Uh, and I would never put myself in, I don't know. It's hard to see myself as him in this situation, but it definitely feels like I owe any of my readers that regardless of whether, whatever happened to me as a kid, but like, uh, it just seems like if, it, if that small thing can like make such a, a an impact it's always something you gotta do. Editor um, is a huge Batman fan. Like her, all of her uh, social media is like Batgirl editor and stuff. And she just like, that's how we bonded. Uh, but she is, I've never met a bigger Batman fan. And it, she started out reading Killing Joke. Like, and that meant so much to her from, for a variety of reasons. Just like how one bad night could, uh, doesn't have to change everything in your life and you can still, like there are people out there who want to help you. Uh, it just meant so much to her that she's just like, she has an entire Batman room uh, just covered in like art and toys and books. It's incredible. So uh, yeah, it's, it's 
it's, I don't know. It's just something that like for such a, a, a thing like that, just story that Alan Moore probably like, I'm sure he put a lot of work into it, but like was work for hire. And he's just like, yeah, just write this creepy story about the Joker. And, uh, and turned out it meant everything to somebody. It's power like writing. When Alan Moore is not like worshiping the snake or whatever other uh, crazy stuff he does. Um, he just spills out brilliance on the page. Like it's nothing. Yeah. And I love that. I love that story about his fake snake. That he, yeah. And I mean, his swamp thing stuff was just phenomenal. Oh yeah, uh, I one of my favorites is his Promethea. Uh, just both about writing and like uh, communication and and literature and everything, but just um, just so beautiful. And that was J. H. Williams. But um, yeah, I can talk about comics all day. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I mean uh, that. The story of, of, of Barbara Gordon becoming going from Batgirl to Oracle uh, and seeing that resilience is, I, I think, one of the more touching stories he's ever written. Oh, yeah. Um, and then they did the, the animated movie version that's made it creepy and weird. Which, But then you get like the Watchmen TV series where I feel like they improved upon Alan Moore. Like I think if you gave Alan Moore a um, 100 years to write, he's not writing that version of Watchmen. But no. Damon Lindelof comes along and I think outdoes him in some ways. It, it was definitely like, uh, I feel like they both kind of did a timely story for their times. And like, we, we're just so uh, distant from the 80s now that the original just feels very like product of another time. And yeah, the the HBO series just felt so timely at the time. It, like it, it, And I'd never heard of the, the Tulsa thing. Like that was all news to me. I can't believe... Like, we never were taught about that kind of thing. I had, but but only recently, my uh, my wife is uh, African-American, and my father-in-law uh, early on would sit me down and say, hey, there's probably some gaps in your history. Let me let me fill you in. So, oh, I learned that and, and many other things, just chilling out in the backyard with him. Oh, that's a great way to learn it. Well, they, they didn't cover it in school. Yeah. Uh, did you learn about Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech? Okay, well, we've covered that subject. Race, that's yep. done. <laughs> Civil rights, easy. You watch it. Right that's now. it. Yep. Well, I feel like uh, that, you know what, that should be the start of the show. <laughs> Us talking about Alan Moore and, and Batman. So you've got uh, Star Wars action figures, and what kind of action figures do you, do you have all over your home? I have, I actually, I have Star Wars. Uh, that was huge for me growing up like I uh in kindergarten I had um I had to do an assignment like what are you thankful for for Thanksgiving uh and I found that paper years later and it just everyone else is like I'm thankful for my family or my dog or something and I'm like I'm thankful for Han Solo primarily <laughs> because he saved Luke I'm sure at that time because I was born in 1977 so I wouldn't have even seen the first movie uh I must have seen it in re-releases and seen like probably had like all the books and stuff it's, it's amazing to think how we didn't have access to movies and, and everything until they were either back out in theaters or we waited till VHS like developed at that time. Uh, and it's, it, it actually, it's uh, like a fascinating thing to me how um, culture has changed because of that, because we've, we've developed into so much more of like um, an iterative process based on stories that everyone kind of knows now because you can watch things so often over and over which wasn't always possible uh books you could but things like movies so you get this um larger portion of the population who has seen something and seen it so many times they can quote it and everything 
uh, and as opposed to like having to go to like a midnight showing or something um, to find those kind of people. So you have like this um, enormous pop culture, like uh, uh, kind of unconscious knowledge throughout um, our society that you can play with and, and just delve into and go to really fun places, um, which uh, not to segue, but that's actually why that was one of the things that drew me to fairy tales, uh, because that it's the same kind of thing. Everyone knows these stories. Everyone, uh, they don't even mem remember maybe when they first heard like Little Red Riding Hood or anything, but it was taught and they were shared at such an early age that people have this knowledge inherent in their mind that they, they probably don't even remember how much they know about it uh, until you start reading um, something hopefully like this, where uh, I, I played with all these characters and I changed them slightly so that uh, there would be some surprises. But I was able to do that because the, the knowledge base was already there. I didn't have to reinvent the wheel. I didn't have to go back and explain who uh, the big bad wolf would be um, or why there's a giant beanstalk. Those kind of things are already like inherent in kids and adults even. So I could just play with them and twist them and, and have all kinds of fun with them. Uh, so yeah, it's it's I love kind of playing with anything that uh, there's just that knowledge base is there because you build off of it, you can twist it, you can trick people uh, in a good way, hopefully uh, with twists. Um, so yeah, and I, I, I've always kind of wondered how much that affected things, just having like VHS and then Blockbuster and DVDs and everything so people could binge watch before even streaming and just kind of uh, develop that like love for something that becomes so intrinsic in new stories. So yeah, sorry, I just kind of went off on a, no, a long tangent. It's a uh, thing that uh, we're, we're approximately about the same age. Mm. Um, so, you know, we have some of the same cultural memories. Uh, and I had Superman 2 on Betamax as a boy. And we would, I would watch Superman 2. And then for my birthday one time, my parents said, you know, we could rent Superman 1. And I'm like, oh, there's a Superman 1? Oh, my God. <laughs> I love that. It's just like, that's the name of the movie. It's just Superman 2. It has no, like, that would have, that would have 100% been me. It would have been like, wait a second. This was, this was numbered. <laughs> I just would have thought he was like Superman Jr. Or something. I don't know. Uh, Superman 3 scared me far more than I'm sure it was intended to with the, the woman who falls into like the circuitry and everything oh, in terms did. of the robot. Oh, hated that. Like, <laughs> The stuff where he fights himself, nothing. But as soon as that woman falls into the, the circuitry and emerges as like a robot, very eerie for whatever reason. Uh, you know, my parents would not let me watch Superman 3, so I didn't see that one until I was in, I think, almost uh, fourth, fifth grade. Mm -hmm. um, so by then, special effects had improved a little bit, and it wasn't that terrifying uh, yes. to me. Uh, that also had Richard Pryor as a strange movie. <laughs> yeah superman 3 is one that i've taught just real quick off tangent but when i teach um classes on writing about how you want to make sure that your conflict escalates constantly through a story and your most exciting conflict should be your finale superman 3 is the example of where i use where they, they screw that up because right before superman fights the cyborg superman fights superman that's the yeah. biggest conflict it's not going to get bigger than that and then the rest of the, of the movie kind of feels like a step down that's a great writing lesson i hadn't really even thought about that i it's been so long since i've seen that i've gone back and watched the first one many times because just it's 
it's so charming. Like, I don't even want to watch the stuff with Lex Luthor. I just want to watch him, like, uh, saving, um, you know, cats from trees and just smiling at, at people and being like, it's, yeah, Christopher Reeves is just amazing. But, uh, yeah, I need to go back and watch Superman 3 now just to, to get a good writing lesson. That's amazing. You know, High Definition has not been its friend. I find that's true of a lot of older movies. The special effects don't hold up with our with our ultra high 4K, 8K TVs. Yeah. And you can see the strings that are holding up Christopher Reeve and all that. Yeah. I imagine stuff like makeup too, which, you know, I'm sure they were never thinking that we would be able to see so much and so clearly. So like the, the makeup wasn't ever, ever done for that reason. And it was done, I'm sure, to be broadcast like on a flickering screen that, you know, the, the probably wasn't a great focus and everything else. So uh, all of that is makes for interesting viewing. I was convincing uh, at the time, but like matte paintings don't hold up in high definition. No. Um, and while I'm, I'm not, I, I was never like a big fan of like the special editions that George Lucas did. I can sort of see why he would feel that way, that he'd want to like update, um, especially for someone like him who was like all about uh, pushing the te technological envelope the whole time. So uh, I'm not a huge fan of some of the changes he made but i i get it now watching them and like 4k and stuff like it it's just you're right it wouldn't have it would have been a disconnect that that just wasn't necessary i'm sure that wherever he's at he's there's a part of him that wants to go back and do a new version which would be fascinating <laughs> i would definitely pay oh, yeah. <laughs> my wallet already is in my hand sir let's do this <laughs> well here's a professional podcaster hat on. My guest today is the audience is James Riley. Uh, and you've got a new book that uh, just released, Half Upon a Time, uh, which is uh, another another Once Upon a Time book or a, a slight continuation. Is it a slight continuation of your pre Or no, Half Upon a Time is the first one and Once Upon Another Time is the new one. Yes. So Half Upon a Time actually came out. It was my first book. Uh, it was a series of three. It came out in 2010, so it's been about 12 years, uh, and it's a story of uh, a, a boy named Jack. He comes from an entire family full of Jacks because there are so many fairy tales about Jacks. I figured it had to be like a family business, um, but he doesn't want to. He doesn't want to be a part of that business. His father, like, is the Jack who climbed the beanstalk and stole from the giant. Um, and the giant chases his father back down to their town and like wrecks everything. So uh, nobody in town much likes. Jack's father, including Jack, and he he just wants no part of adventure and excitement. Uh, I always <laughs> shift back to Star Wars phrases whenever I'm thinking about adventure and excitement. Uh, so he he's basically he has to he's in school to learn how to rescue princesses and everything because that's the only way to advance in a fairy tale world. You have to uh, become royalty if you want to get anywhere in life, um, or at least fight dragons and or defeat witches to get their treasure. And he's like, no, I just want to be like a normal farmer. Uh, and unfortunately, that's not how life works. And um, a girl in a black t-shirt falls out of a flaming circle in the sky right above him. And he reaches out to catch her and he misses because he's not very good at this sort of thing. Uh, and it turns out that is a girl named May who uh, is actually from our world until a uh, seven dwarfs and a huntsman showed up in her house and kidnapped her and her grandmother. Uh, and as Jack hears this, he, he figures out that it sounds like her grandmother might be the long-lost Snow White who led this huge revolution against the Wicked Queen uh, and has been missing ever since. So they go to try to find and rescue her grandmother. That leads to a lot of twists and turns that uh, took place over the, the initial series. 
Um, but after doing that, like whenever I'm writing, I always uh, plan out the entire series before I start, just for my own sake. I like to, I, even if things change along the way, I like to set things up. I like to seed plot points as I go just for, um, for my own, like that's how I like to read. I like to see that uh, an author had a plan <laughs> and, and knew where they're going uh, just because it feels like you're in capable hands. And I love seeing things pay off. So uh, I try to do that myself, whether or not I actually have capable hands. I, I like to um, at least pretend that I know what I'm doing and uh, seed things for, for kids to discover as they read. Um, so uh, that that's a long way of saying I, I had a complete story in my head for half upon a time. Um, and so when it was over though, kids would ask, you know, are you gonna do more? They want to see more of the characters. And I never really had a story for that. And there's, I'm not, I, I didn't want to just go back and do more stories about these characters without having like a, a solid story for it. Um, and then recently I, I'd always had it in mind that because this was the, the original series was about uh, Jack and his family and all these other characters, they involved giants left and right. So uh, I thought it'd be fun to do a story about the giants from the giants perspective. And that was, that was basically the only thing I ever kind of thought about uh, for over the years. And I was like, I just kind of let it sit. Uh, and it eventually became the story of Once Upon Another Time, um, which is about a girl named Lena, who is actually a giant, but she's five feet tall. So she's kind of the equivalent of, uh, if she were human, she would be like five inches tall. So she's a true giant. She was born of two giants. She has giant strength, uh, but her people don't accept her because she looks like a human. And to giants, humans are the like the rodents who come up and steal from them and uh, get them into trouble and stuff. So uh, she has to hide who she is. Um, she has to, uh, no one can, none of the other giants really know her secret except for a few of them. And the, the few that do always look down on her and make her feel like un, just not a part of her own culture. Uh, and that's kind of led her to uh, exploring down below the clouds since the giants live in the clouds. And she's discovered the city below of cursed humans that has welcomed her because they're all like, uh, it's, it's people like uh, Pinocchio and Humpty Dumpty, uh, creatures that sort of were once human and were cursed or they were born this way, but they, they are like fully cognizant and everything. So it's this kind of city where all these uh, cursed individuals have ended up. And so they're very accepting of bringing in new people. Uh, and it's also the city where... Um, the rebels against the golden king are operating and the golden king is my version of king midas uh and he's the the big bad in in once upon another time so uh he's looking for the cursed city because he knows there's a character named the last knight who's leading the rebellion who hides there because the cursed city is like protected by this spell where if you're looking for it you can't or if you're looking for it with malicious intent you can't find it so uh the golden king actually has our uh second main character in his uh, employ. That's a genie named Jin, who is, um, he's the first new genie in thousands of years. And he's, he's only been around for about 12 years as well. Uh, Lena is also 12. Uh, Jin actually, there are some Easter eggs from Half on a Time where Jin gets, uh, I don't want to spoil things, but one of the fun scenes I got to write in Half on a Time was a story about a fairy godmother fighting a genie. Cause I thought like, that was the kind of point of half fun of time for me. I got to take anything that sounded like a joyful thing for me, smushing all these characters together and seeing what happens. So I was like, yeah, let's let's make the genie and the fairy godmother fight. 
uh, and it doesn't go well. But uh, what happens during that scene actually leads to Jin. Um, and unfortunately, as a young genie, uh, his elders have like declared that he has to serve humans for a thousand and some odd years to learn humility uh, so that he will be able to handle his uh, his magic and his omniscience sort of uh, with with uh, without kind of taking over the world uh, because he's got too much power for like such a young kid to to really understand. So they've limited his power. They've limited his uh, omniscience. So he can only access his um, like his all knowing knowledge uh, via a voice in his head, who he calls the cosmic knowledge, and is very kind of snarky and judgmental. Uh, and he he doesn't he doesn't have access to most of his magic. Like I said, he can basically only teleport or change how he looks. Uh, kind of he can only really do things for him like to himself. Uh, but he is in the, the, the Golden King has his ring, which is like his item of power. So the Golden King orders him to find the last knight, which puts Jin on a course with interacting with Lena. Um, so this was, it was, this was an idea that like, it felt sort of timely because, uh, Lena, who you might realize comes from Thumbelina, uh, she's, it's so much about like how she comes to deal with sort of who she is and, um, what to do if maybe the people you love aren't really there for you, that they might reject who you are because they don't really understand, uh, or you're just different. So this is very much a book about her kind of coming to grips with her identity and becoming okay with it, um, while also realizing that some people might, um, like the, when the, the Cursed City residents find out she's actually a giant, they initially reject that because they, they don't, they're afraid of giants. Um, and so she has to kind of come to grips with that from both sides, her giant heritage and the people who she sort of fits in with, at least uh, uh, physically, because she's their size. So yeah, there's a lot going on in Once Upon Another Time. Uh, it's At the moment, it's going to be a trilogy. And uh, the second book is coming out in September. It's called uh, Tall Tales, strangely enough. Um, and the cover is actually really fun. It shows Lena, Jin, and Lena's giant cat, who is my version of Puss in Boots, uh, he's just, he's literally a giant cat. He's, he was her pet up in the clouds. Uh, so he's just a normal cat who happens to be wearing a hat that translates his meows into words. So he's not any smarter than an average cat. He runs at the, the first sign of danger and everything and abandons her and then comes trotting back and is like, Oh, what's going on? Where are the treats? Uh, so he was a joy to write because I love cats. Um, but the, the rest of the cover is uh, Lena and Jin sort of um, walking into a city full of very tiny people, which is Lilliput uh, from uh, Gulliver's Travels, which was a joy to write too. Uh, I, I figured if I was going to do the story of Thumbelina and uh, without spoiling things, the story of Tom Thumb might come in as well. Uh, it seemed like a natural to just make some of this related to, uh, to Lilliput, um, which was just... This is this is what this is the whole reason I write these books is because it's a joy to play with so many concepts. No, I can see it on your face as you're as you're talking. Uh, how much uh, fun you you you've been having and are, are going to continue to have? I saw that obviously book two is now available. I think for pre order. Yes, I know it's definitely it's, it's got its own Amazon page. I assume people could be buying it. Um, have you finished book three also at this point? Uh, I haven't finished it. Um, I've gotten most of the way through it. It's going to be out about a year from now. So I, I need to have finished it. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's all plotted out. Like I, 
I typically, when I'm writing, I've found that it helps to plot out chapter by chapter now. I didn't used to do that. I used to just kind of very vaguely sketch out a book uh, and I would do like um, character arcs and stuff like that uh, and kind of hit the big plot points. And then I would just kind of uh, just start writing. But I've realized since that plotting it out chapter by chapter kind of eliminates any um, writer's block kind of issues. I don't have, if I always know what's coming next, even if I change it, it, it always feels like I have a safety net. Like I have something, I don't need to worry about what I'm going to write that day. I know exactly, I had it all planned out. And like I said, that, that might completely change. It might change while I'm writing. It could change, uh, you know, a few days earlier. I might've thrown in a plot point that kind of negates something. But uh, yeah, it's it just feels like um, it's, there's like a comfort level there that uh, that makes writing less of a scary prospect. And I've written... 15 books now and still every day is writing is a <laughs> terrifying prospect uh so yeah i that's one of the little things i've learned that kind of helps me just and i know other people are kind of uh see their pantsers and they just start writing uh when that fully terrifies me so i don't know if i'll ever try that but um yeah so it's it's one of those things that i just sort of um have picked up along the way and so long story short uh the third book which right now is called happily ever after um and it won't be, uh, that is fully like plotted out. And so I just need to get through the ending. I forced myself once to do a, a full pantser exercise. Well, I'm going to skip the outline this time. I'm just going to sit down and, and do this and fine. But the revision took forever. And ultimately I ended up writing an outline after the fact to help me keep track. So there was no skipping that step. It just came a little bit later in the process. <laughs> I've had that same thing happen where I like, I get through something and it doesn't feel right. And then I have to go back and outline it anyway. Uh, and like, that's, that's when I started doing this. And it was also a, a, an effort to find problems like ahead of time. Um, there are so many things that, you know, it's feel like they're going to work when you're, you're thinking of them in your head and then you get them on paper and it just doesn't like, there's just something that's off about it. And it's so much easier to find those problems when you're just outlining versus when you're 300 pages in and you're like, none of this works and it, it didn't work from page 10 and this is a problem. Uh, so yeah, I, I'd much rather take a little time early than uh, end up rewriting the entire book, which has happened. <laughs> How much time are we uh, talking just spent outlining? Um, I mean, honestly, the most time comes with just daydreaming and uh, thinking about it and uh, like sending myself notes. Uh, I email myself so many just um, random <laughs> emails with the subject line notes that are just either like two sentences or like maybe 10 bullet points or whatever of something that I'm thinking about. Uh, so like that's, that's a, there's probably a few weeks in there and it usually comes when I'm finishing up something else. Um, and then I will sit down, like the actual plotting basically only takes like a day, uh, if, if everything goes well, like just sitting down and like outlining the, the whole book. Um, but yeah, it's 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 because the the real work happened <laughs> way in advance, and just letting it kind of percolate in my head. Do you start? Uh, do you write a chapter while you're outlining a couple of chapters just to get a sense of it, or do you wait uh, with discipline until you have the whole outline, a full plan, and then okay, day one, let me start. It's it's been that way since I've started plotting it out chapter by chapter. Yeah, uh, where I will wait, um, and it's especially going back to something I didn't really mention that. Uh, so 
Once Upon Another Time is a sequel, but it takes place 12 years after Half Upon a Time. So there's no, there. The, some of the characters show up, but you don't need to have read the first series. Um, that, that actually came up in my head though, because I, <laughs> it, was, it was fun to return to that world and uh, it felt like a natural progression and I could kind of just step back into it without having much, uh, there, it was just, it, I could kind of return to that writing style very easily. Uh, and it was fun to do so. So it, I was less worried about that when I was writing because I kind of, I'd already done three books of it, even though the voice changes uh, and the characters, um, because my narration, it's like third person omniscient, but uh, I delve into some, the individual characters. In, um, so I do a chapter of Lena and then a chapter of Jin. So you get into their thoughts as it's going. So the individual voices definitely are different, but uh, it, it did still feel like kind of putting on a nice warm hoodie that you hadn't worn in a while. Very comforting. Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask some in the weeds questions just because I'm, I'm, I'm interested. When you uh, sit down, how, what do you have before you start outlining? You know, more or less who your character is going to be. Do you have some idea of what that progression of the journey is going to be? How much do you have before you write the first thing? I so I would generally start like to get really far back i will i will start with like an idea of um the thumbelina story but as a giant so um instead of having like a five inch tall girl we're going to deal with a girl who fits in very easily with human society uh if if a little tall uh for her age but uh does not fit in with giant society um so that that would be where it starts and then i would uh think about i would kind of build up that world in my head uh, and think about what that would mean and what other characters I might want to play with and where it might go, who the villains would be and like the themes. Um, so that kind of stuff would all happen just entirely in my head. And then I would start writing out synopses of uh, the books, however many books I planned out. Um, and they would get, the first book is always very, uh, it's always much longer and more detailed. And then I kind of <laughs> get more vague as the second and third book go. Uh, but the big plot points were there. And then from there, I would take all of that and do a chapter by chapter outline um, where it, it gets very specific. It covers like the character arc stuff, the big plot points, uh, and generally everything that happens in a chapter. So after that point is when I would actually sit down and start writing. Um, and I, I think I'm different from a lot of writers. I, I entirely just go by, I do a chapter at a time. Uh, so my chapters usually end up being about five pages in Word, um, and I try to write two chapters a day, uh, so about 10 pages. And I, so I, I never, whenever people talk about word count, I'm always completely baffled uh, because word count to me is either zero or the final product uh, because I know I have to hit a certain amount of words, but I just kind of, for whatever reason in my head, it's always, it's just a chapter thing. So uh yeah, it's that's that's when I start writing and uh, and go through to the end and then do like potentially three to four drafts, sometimes six or seven when it's not going well. Uh, but yeah, generally that's that's the process. Word count is a, is a slippery slope, dangerous sometimes to, in terms of tracking. I mean, it's better than not tracking because you can say, hey, I had a goal and I meet it, I, I met it. But then if I'm revising and I see that, oh, I've got 200 extra words here that are not needed. This is this is garbage. Let me cut that. And I think to myself, oh, you hit your word count that day, didn't you? Felt, felt good <laughs> that day. Let's take that out. 
one of the the reasons I like chapters too is because uh, I love being cruel and uh, ending chapters on cliffhangers and stuff. But that that makes it so easy to pick up the next day. Uh, apart from even having that chapter like plotted out, it's nice because you're feeling like uh, you're you're dealing with something immediate, and there's a resolution to that. And then as you go into the next chapter, it's it it just kind of makes it uh, just a little more just another little trick. Uh, and it's one of those tricks that works out well for me with writing it and hopefully keeps people reading it. So it's kind of a win-win. Um, but yeah, I love, I love cliffhangers. <laughs> I love being cruel. Whenever kids tell me that like the books made them cry, I'm like, that's such a nice thing to say. Thank you. So honored. <laughs> the thought of you weeping has cheered me tremendously. I appreciate it. <laughs> yes. Oh, it makes me just laugh maniacally too. But uh, I mean, I, I, I would never like betray the kids in and give them like a terrible ending. Uh, I'm not, I'm not trying to like make them aware of how cruel the world is. I just want to write fun stories that like for the moment seems like they're going to go really badly. Uh, and then, I mean, they're fairy tales. They have to go, they have to have some sort of happy ending, um, which is why I, I love the title for the third book of Happily Ever After, just because the whole book is going to be about entirely how it's not. It's very much like the second book ends in a very Empire Strikes Back sort of way. So it's fun. Yeah, I was curious. Do you not feel compelled to make that second book a little bit darker just because that's that's the template that was set down for us? Yes. Uh, and that's always something I have to both um, I embrace and also fight a little bit against. Just try not to be too cliche, but it always comes back to it. It's like it's such a classic trilogy uh, to, to do a darker second book. And this one... It's going to be, it's definitely a little darker, but it's also, I, I always try to ramp up the humor if I'm going to do anything slightly darker. Um, Tall Tales is sort of, uh, without spoiling the first book, um, uh, a greater threat sort of emerges and Lena discovers some stuff about giants herself uh, and where and how they came about that uh, sort of puts a darker spin on things. And she has to learn like, how to deal with that with her 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 own kind of newfound confidence after the first book so there there's some darker elements there whereas uh <laughs> things happen to Jin that just make him basically uh, an entirely comedic character for like the first half of the book which was just a joy to write and I, I can't really give it away but he's he's yeah it was just pure fun so I always try to balance things just so no one's like openly weeping for the entire book I definitely want some jokes in there <laughs> You know, I had uh, something similar when I wrote my Banneker Bones trilogy available now, esteemed audience. Um, the second book, I thought, well, this would be the darker one, and it was. Uh, but then the third book was even darker yet. Oh, no, stop it. <laughs> we did that already. But nope, it just uh, until 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 we get out of it. I'm like, no, it just I, I want to ramp up that conflict even more, it turns out. I mean, Return of the Jedi had some pretty dark moments. I don't I don't know. <laughs> all of my my storytelling always goes back to star wars and like disney movies but it's 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 that thing where it's like anything you experience when you're young is like the the golden perfection or whatever the uh i don't know it's we we kind of get so influenced by what we experience when we're we're growing that it's it's almost impossible to escape and that's that's one of those things that like uh and i'm sure you've noticed like when i was growing up things like star wars were so like mocked uh, and, you know, enjoying comic books was not popular in any way. So, like, 
watching Marvel become just a juggernaut of pop culture and watching Star Wars become, it was always, you know, it, the movies would do really well, but like just to have people embrace it in pop culture and like see kids uh, like publicly enjoying it uh, and know that like they're not going to get mocked for that. It's just beautiful. And I love, I love that. I mean, there's probably a lot of reasons for that. Uh, one of which is probably just because the uh, capitalism engine got behind it. Like, no, we could reach more markets. We could, <laughs> we could proliferate with this stuff and and, and come on all fronts uh, to mm -hmm. increase profit. But I also think that our society, from the time we're talking, you know, from early '80s on, has become objectively more accepting. We're obviously we're not where we need to be yet. We just had a tremendous racist backlash. Uh, politically. Mm -hmm. um, that's all I'll say on that for now. Um, so that's, there's, 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 there's real problems, but just objectively, it, I think it's better to be a person who feels like, uh, like, you know, a little bit uh, different or like you have a secret now than it was when we were growing up. And a smaller version of that is okay. When you might have gotten picked on for liking comic books or Star Wars in the 80s or the 90s, and now everybody likes him, it's because somewhere in there we said, you know what, it's okay. Just life is short. Just be who you want to be. Go yes. get it done. And it's, uh, I mean, the internet has been such a boon for that and finding other people who like what you like and finding out that you're not alone and you can like share in that and you can write fan fiction and you can just uh, enjoy like shipping people. Like it's, it's, it's amazing for all, all the, all the horrible things the internet has also done that like it has created such a, it's produced so many communities that, that can like, uh, it just, it feels like you're not alone. If you're, even if you're in like growing up in some small town in Iowa, which is where I grew up in my teenage years, um, you can, you can access people who think differently from the people around you and you can see that there's more out there. And I'm sure it's got to feel just uh, much more like there's there are better things to come, even if at the time you're in school in like a small town or something, and maybe everyone doesn't really uh, like the same kind of stuff you like. So there, there are some real benefits to just uh, the connection that the internet has brought us. Yeah, and it's also it's good for a little bit of humility as well, I think. Because uh, I know that uh, we had, you know, we, we had the person who was the really great actor who was going to go off to Hollywood. I think lots of schools had that through the 80s and I probably still do. Um, but now you can go online and you can see just how many amazing actors there are, how many amazing writers there are. And that humility is maybe the wrong word, but perspective of, yes. oh, okay, no humility. Um, I could be a little bit humble. Uh, certainly this show has been a... a, a humbling experience for me and talking to so many brilliant writers because uh, when we're in the 80s we don't have the internet you're isolated you're the only one for the entire area in your town you might you might literally be the best writer of your class and that feels amazing because you don't have the knowledge of of all the tremendous writers who are out there whereas now you have that and it's both gratifying because you're like oh i'm not alone there are so many people i can go and talk to but it also limits that that ego from running wild is maybe a better way to, to phrase it because i think that's a real that has been i think for people a real trap and now because you're exposed to how many brilliant people there are in the world you can calm down a little bit like oh there's we are legion. We're going to be okay. And this is good news, but it doesn't have to always be all about me. Yeah. Uh, I say, and then I'm going to, I'm going to hop off of here and look on social media and somebody will have literally their, 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 
their uh, devotion is to, to making things all about me. <laughs> so uh, uh, that I think it's hitting differently at different times for people. <laughs> it's definitely a double-edged sword. Like uh, I love the concept of Goodreads. And if I go on it, I like, I want to hide uh, in my bed for the rest of my life, just because people rightfully are just, you know, they're being blunt. They, they, they'll tell you what you, they liked about your book and they'll tell you everything they hated. And that's what it's for. Uh, but as an author to go and read, it's just, uh, it's, it's, I don't know. I don't, I, I, I'm sure there are authors out there who are very like confident in their work and uh who are probably a lot more mentally healthy than i am but and who probably stay away from reviews but like that's not me and i'm always like are people gonna like this and so going on a site that's just pure like made for readers to find books and and made for readers to talk about books uh it's it's a dangerous <laughs> it's it's not a smart idea i just i can get just crushed by someone there's one comment that i will never forget where it uh, someone said about half on a time that he's trying to be clever and he's failing. And I was like, I'm actually not trying to be clever. Trust me. I, 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 I don't think any of this is clever. It's just me trying to have fun. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I, I, I failed <laughs> and it's, it's, it's ridiculous. And I, I probably should let that go, but it's, it's just one of those comments that has stuck with me. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's definitely humbling. <laughs> Do you find that you will not ignore, but uh, conveniently forget the 100 positive reviews you you read, and then just narrow in on that one one star review? 100. percent Like the uh, the positive reviews are so amazing, but they're very fleeting. Like they're they're just like uh, it's like eating sugar, and you get that high for a moment, and then you crash as soon as you see that that uh, that negative review. Just I don't know if it's, uh, I'm sure it's just how we're, we're sort of made to look for the danger and the, like the negative to better, better, like, uh, keep ourselves safe, um, while there are, you know, animals hunting us and everything, but yeah, it's, it's not great for, for mental health. So I tend to just ignore reviews, uh, not ignore them. I tend to just not seek them out and kind of try to stay as far away from them as possible. Even positive ones, uh, they can be like 95% positive and they'll be like, well, and it was a little slow at the beginning. I'm like, oh, that I, I really tried not to do that. I'm so sorry. I, I, I need to fix that. I need to make that better next time. So yeah, it's, it's a dangerous game. Or you could find yourself, I, not that I would ever do this, but you find yourself agreeing with the five stars. Like, this book is brilliant. Maybe the most brilliant book ever written. I'm like, yes, finally someone said it. <laughs> that's that's just not me i i'm always like i'm so, like what how did i confuse you how did i trick you into thinking this is brilliant uh i really appreciate that you think so uh and i i at least i i was taught very early on to be uh you know just to thank people if they're giving you compliments and never be like uh they're like this is my favorite book and you're like oh well all i see are the mistakes so you know it's not that great you like saying that back to somebody who's a fan is just it's rude and it's not taking into account that it doesn't matter what you think of it. It matters what they think. So I've, I've always tried to be very gracious. Uh, but yeah, I, I've never been able to internalize any of those kind of compliments, which is probably for the best. Good way to take a, a, a big fan and turn them into a lifelong enemy. Your opinion is terrible. <laughs> That's your favorite book. You need to read more. Come on. <laughs> 
So uh, have you ever found as you're reading that you find some criticism? Oh, that's actually well written. And that's something I can I can use going forward. So I'm glad I encountered that. Have you had that experience or is it all just up, down and a waste of your time? Um, yeah, it's I would say, I mean, it's certainly not a waste of time. It's just sort of a negative uh, thing for me just emotionally. So I try to avoid it. But uh, I, I tend to internalize things from my editor and editors like uh, much more often, um, you know, for practical reasons, just because they're, they're the ones telling me if the book is good enough or not and whether they're going to take it. But also just uh, they, they know my writing, they know how I work, and they know sort of uh, places that I can improve. And they've seen all the different drafts and everything. So they're, they're just, uh, they, they kind of have that knowledge. Um, I feel like most negative reviews are covering things that I already kind of know are weaknesses about myself and that I, I'm trying to work on. Uh, and there, when things kind of fall outside that category and someone hates something that maybe like other readers have liked, I tend to just think that's just a personal thing um, or, or vice versa. If people like something that other people hated, <laughs> I tend to think maybe that it's just, uh, it just happened to click with that one person. Um, but yeah, it's it's something um, I, I probably internalize my editors and my agent more just for that reason, because uh, they they sort of know where I'm coming from and I've seen kind of the evolution of all these ideas. Um, yeah. Well, they're also still publishing you. So that's, I mean, that's about the most positive affirmation there could be, right? It's true. Uh, and like, just it's, it's always such a nice feeling to be like, to, to hear someone who you've worked with and who knows your stuff to be like, oh, this is like my favorite of your books. That that actually means a lot uh, just because they've had, because it's their job, they've had to read all of my books. And so for them to really like one, that's just, uh, that feels great. So that that kind of praise I do internalize, um, whether or not they're just being nice, but it, it feels good. <laughs> Well, if, if if they're being nice and they're making an effort, well, the effort uh, is is what's to be appreciated. I think exactly. <laughs> when uh, when you're dealing with um, uh, what's the established IP, I guess is as good a term as any. When you're dealing with stories that kind of belong to all of us, we've all seen different versions of Puss in Boots. We have some idea. Like, how is this going to be better than Antonio Banderas or whatever other version that well, we like? How do you sit down and <laughs> how do you sit down and, and, and work to distinguish yourself against uh, or from what's uh, already come before you? Uh, and then how how much what responsibility do you feel to be true to what to our, our shared knowledge of this character? Um, so when I was writing Half Upon a Time, there weren't so many series like this, uh, like uh, Land of Stories and stuff. Um, has come out since. And so it's like, there, there's definitely more to worry about that I don't want to um, uh, just be influenced by or, or like cover the same territory as other people. Um, so it was sort of a little easier when I was writing Half Upon a Time. Um, but my philosophy was always like, uh, we have this shared knowledge of fairy tales. That's uh, kind of like the pop cultural equivalent of sampling songs. Uh, everyone kind of knows where they're from. We know the melody. Uh, so it's fun to play that melody uh, in a different song. It's fun to take those characters that we know and kind of put them into a new situation, maybe make them 
change their stories just by interacting with other fairy tale characters. So like, what if Sleeping Beauty never woke up? Uh, what, how would that change the whole world or, or her story? Uh, what if the big bad wolf from Little Red Riding Hood was also the big bad wolf from the three pigs? That creates like new story ideas. Um, but the, I also like taking things a little further so I ended up making the Big Bad Wolf in the original series also the Beast from Beauty and the Beast because that sort of fit in with this new character I was writing and it, it kind of set him up as this tragic character as well instead of just this uh, sort of animal who was going around trying to eat people's grandmothers and stuff. Uh, but honestly, it comes down to um, taking what people assume and then playing with those expectations. So I never want to just have like... Uh, you know, fairy tale character A, and just have them exactly how they were in all the stories we know, uh, and that's not even always possible. Like, you, there's so many different um, places we get the knowledge from these stories. Like, you could have grown up watching the Disney version of Cinderella, or you could have read Cinderella as a fairy tale, um, but kind of tailored for kids, or you could have read the original version and or one of many thousands of different versions that like popped up all around the world anyway. So it's it's sort of impossible to um, to be true to any one fairy tale, uh, even if we're going back to like the Brothers Grimm. Like those were all stories they collected, and they were changing because they were just told orally through the ages. So like uh, even their version is just one one uh, one specific version of that story. Um, and so it's I think it's about finding like the core of the story, and then also playing with that knowledge so that people are surprised and don't see what's coming uh, i want them to think they know what's coming and then i want to pull the rug out just for <laughs> both for my enjoyment but also for theirs so that uh they're constantly kind of trying to figure out what's to come uh one of the things i played with in half on a time was um all the main characters were from very famous fairy tales uh and you think you might know who it is like uh the main character of jack you probably think he's going to be involved with the giants um, and, it, and he is, but it turns out he's actually from a very famous fairy tale. And part of the, the fun, hopefully, of that series is like figuring that out, figuring out who May is and what fairy tale she's from. Uh, and there are clues kind of presented throughout, but you, you don't really learn until as the series kind of progresses. So it's, uh, that was one of the fun things, too. Like, not only can I twist the, the stories that everyone knows, but I can use that knowledge to create mysteries and, and uh, hint at things and especially hint, uh, like give red herrings and kind of push people up down a different path than I want them to go. So I can kind of surprise them uh, with, with the actual reveal. So it's, it's just a ton of fun to be able to take that kind of stuff. I, I, I don't feel any kind of a special, uh, a special um, uh, responsibility to kind of like making these uh, authentic in any way to like the original fairy tales or anything like that just because I don't know that uh, at this point when you think of fairy tales everyone kind of um, they have their own ideas they they think of the story as opposed to the version they read I, I would imagine because we get them in so many different ways when we're kids we get them read to us we watch the movies uh, and they're all different but there's like that core so I guess I guess that's the authenticity that I'm looking for, which is like the part of the story that resonates um, and everything else other than that is uh, is room for, for playing. 
Gotcha. So if you're writing about Cinderella, at some point there has to be a glass slipper. She probably has some evil stepsisters, but beyond that, it's more or less fair game. Yeah. Uh, and like, for example, if I were going to write um, a mystery about who Cinderella would be, I would probably uh, have, you know, do the Disney thing where like there are animals talking to her or just like surrounding her. And in my sense of humor, that would get really annoying for her. Uh, like she's woken up by birds every morning and she's like, I'm just trying to sleep. Just please be quiet. Uh, that's that's a hypothetical. Uh, I, I, yeah, I don't want to spoil things, but I, I did write that scene. <laughs> because that, that was the kind of thing that- Following you around and singing would be maybe one of the most obnoxious things that could ever happen to you like after the first day. First day yeah, would be exactly. amazing. But by day out, two, I'm done. <laughs> starts out amazing and then just goes rapidly downhill. And you're just like, just please let me have some alone time. I just want quiet for a moment. Yeah. You put on my own clothes. I don't need you flying my stuff around. No. <laughs> like this, you don't need to serve me. I, I don't even know why you're here. Uh, yeah. The character of Cinderella in my books uh, through um, uh, just happenstance throughout the books ends up with a pirate monkey uh, who just won't leave her alone for um, for story reasons. Uh, and that was a joy to write too, just because she, she attracts animals. And that's just part of her story. So uh, he, she has this really annoying pirate monkey that uh, everyone else hates. And she's just like, she can't get him to stop and just go back to his pirates. Uh, it's just, it's, it's kind of little things like that where um, you start mixing the fairy tales up and kind of having them overlap and, and messing with each other's stories that just creates enormous, like fun moments for me. I wonder if, um, it's a function of the fact that these are stories largely told to younger audiences or because they've been interpreted so many times that you can play around and do your own version where if you, if you tried to do that with Star Wars characters, God save you from the chat room people that are coming <laughs> that are coming for you after you, you, you've messed with, uh, I don't know, Guido shooting first or whatever other changes you might want to make. It's true. I, I think there is a, a real like advantage in these being older and so having gone through so many versions um yeah i don't i don't know if you could do that with anything so modern so and it's certainly not something you could do with just like starting from scratch like you can't no one's going to be uh following your clues if you're just if you're making up this world from scratch and like just um building out like who these characters are uh yeah it's it's one of these kind of unique things you can do with fairy tales and i'm sure a few other things sherlock holmes stories uh uh, vampire stories like you, we, these things that sort of have entered our collective unconsciousness that you can play with um, and as much as Star Wars like I would assume like 30 years from now Star Wars will be in that same place and we, we saw a little bit of that with that uh, I forget what it's called Star Wars Visions or something they where they had anime studios kind of take the uh, intrinsic idea of Star Wars and kind of go in their own directions uh, and that was amazing but it it was also <laughs> done by LucasArts or Lucasfilm, so like it's they they get to play with things the way they want to play with them, uh, and it's not yet. Whenever Star Wars enters the public domain, things are going to get wild. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure if Disney can do it, they will they will push that date back as far as as far yes. as they possibly can. <laughs> Very true. So, uh, in fact, you uh, you worked uh, for Disney right when you were first getting started. What, what did you do for Disney? Um, the kids always ask, like, when I go to schools, uh, they're always like, did you, did you wear a costume? And I was like, no, I, that would have been both amazing and terrifying, I would imagine. Uh, 
both because the uh, the heat in Southern California or uh, in Orlando in one of those costumes has to be intense, uh, and I do not envy any of them. Um, but also just uh, just not being able to talk. It's it's almost like, and I I think they do hire actors who know how to move and uh, communicate with gestures and stuff when you're in one of those like um, full body, like uh, Mickey Mouse costumes or anything versus like a princess or something. Um, so that's, that's, that always blows my mind. I was just working at Disney.com. So it was, it was nothing terribly exciting, uh, but I am a huge Disney fan, uh, primarily for the animation, but also I grew up going to the parks and I just, there's something uh, like that, that hits me in like the non-cynical part of my heart when I go there and it does feel magical. Um, and part of that is just because they throw so much money at advertising uh, and pushing that. But there's something about it that that like seeing a castle before you that looks pretty real and uh, even knowing all the little tricks they use with forced perspective and everything, it still gets you or it gets me. And it's, it's something that like has always meant something. And it kind of goes back to another reason I love fairy tales, which is like, in a fairy tale, magic is just a normal, it's basically like science. It's just happening outside. It's not that strange that you end up selling your cow for magic beans. Like no one was typically, like Jack wasn't that surprised when the beanstalk uh, grows in his backyard. Um, and I love that. I love that magic can just happen and it does happen. Uh, and I love the idea that like that would be the world. So uh, that's one of the things about Disney that kind of always gets me. I love that you can go to these parks and feel like magic could happen there. Uh, it's like the idealized version of um, castles and magicians and knights and everything uh, in, a, in a very sort of innocent toned down way. But um, there's something about it that I love. So that was the reason I, I ended up going to Disney. I just wanted to, uh, to work at the company. And there's always, you know, it, there, you can't go and see behind the scenes of something and have it kind of retain that magic. Uh, but I, I got to do some amazing things there that, um, I, yeah, I got to go to Pixar at one point, which was a ton of fun. Um, yeah, it was, so I, it was, it was like the opportunity of a lifetime, even though I was just working at Disney.com just to kind of like see a lot of the cool behind the scenes thing. I used to go and hang out at the studios cause I was in Los Angeles at the time and just have lunch, uh, and walk around where like Walt used to, uh, have his office and stuff. And there was something very fanboy about it that just like always tickled me. It was amazing. Is there anything about the company culture that you've carried with you into creating your own stories? Um, I'd actually, I got published right when I started working there. So half on a time had already been kind of written, but uh, I don't know about the culture necessarily. The, the fun thing about Disney is that so many people there are there because they love it. Um, and so there's there's very much like a protectiveness among people there. You also have just like people who come in because it's a big company and everything. But um, so many people like truly care, uh, especially in the creative departments and like the animators and everything. They, they want to tell the best possible story they can. Uh, so I guess most of what I got from being there was just getting inspired by like some amazingly creative people. I got to um, have lunch once with Joe Rohde, who was an Imagineer who built like Animal Kingdom uh, and, and just he, he'd been working there forever. And he, he's just the most inspiring dude. He, he just talks about his process and I, I like, I wanna write, I, I just wanna jump back to my computer and just dive into a story. 
Um, and he actually, this is this is something that amazed me and really impressed me. Uh, they were they were doing art for a park that didn't end up happening. Um, and so I won't talk about it too much because I don't want to get sued or anything, but uh, he was showing me that they had gotten, um, I, I forget the exact details, but basically they wanted to present like uh, a restaurant in some sort of South American uh, motif. So they had like Peruvian artists interpret Brazilian art and Brazilian art artists interpret Peruvian art. And he was like, I wanted to make it sort of this hyper-realism where it felt new and different, but true. Like this, this like larger truth to it. Uh, and he wasn't even gonna use this. It was just purely for inspiration. Like they were getting this just to kind of uh, develop like their style. And it was just to have that like be the culture where artists are encouraged to like, uh, you know, go out and, and pay other artists just to be inspired by them. That part is truly amazing. And like, that will always be the part of Disney that I will love no matter what, no matter what the, the current CEO or whatever are doing. Um, it, there, there are people there who like are so take their, their, their process and their creativity so seriously and are just working to be inspired by and to inspire other people. So yeah, that part was very like satisfying in every way. And I, yeah. CEOs uh, get too much attention focused on them, I think. Um, and I think, I think that's true. Like anytime I, I, I see a movie and like, this was directed by, if we're seeing like a great big major motion picture, like a, like a Marvel film, like, okay, well, yeah, one person was officially the director, but he, he wasn't up making the costumes every morning or writing the, the screenplay. There's, there's a whole army of people that goes into any giant endeavor like that. I think exactly. that's just a, a sickness of our culture. We like Steve Jobs standing out there, no belt on his jeans. Like, I did this. No, there's a whole bunch of people behind you that did this. You're just the guy that stands out and brands it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely something that, I feel like there's that American individualism where we're like, yeah, Steve Jobs did it all or Jeff Bezos did it all. And it's like, uh, especially with Apple, it's like they have so many designers and uh, just people pushing uh, like new ways. Uh, and Steve Jobs might have been like, yeah, let's focus on that. Um, but it, it's, it's like you said, with movies too, like the, the sheer, it's like an army of people making these uh, and so many creative people and like, people building sets that are going to be struck down the next day and, and all their work will be on, on screen for maybe like 30 seconds, but they still put their heart into it. It's one of those reasons why like as much as the Oscars are kind of ridiculous and, and everything, it's still nice that they have so many awards for all the, the stuff that never gets recognized. Um, all the people in the credits who you're just sitting there like your eyes are glazing as you're waiting for the post credit scene who don't get enough recognition. It's, it's nice to be able to like show off how amazing those costumes are or like just uh, the production art or um, I don't even know if they do storyboarding, but that seems like uh, something they should definitely be like uh, recognizing too. Um, those people, like so many Marvel movies, I think are storyboarded now just from the start uh, because it, it makes so much sense. So much about comic books as like, uh, a style that that 
leads to uh, it's kind of like outlining a book. You get to see what the movie's going to look like from all different perspectives before you even have to start. And I'm guessing that's a lot cheaper than going out and filming and then refilming and reshooting and everything over and over. I keep getting off on these tangents about uh, the creative aspect. Yeah, no, I think uh, I think that's it's, it's, I don't know if it's uniquely American, but it's definitely it's part of uh, capitalism's huckster sales pitch so that if you work hard, you can be Jeff Bezos and have health care, or you didn't work hard and now you don't get health care. You're just you. <laughs> yep, it's it's something. Uh, my wife always points out that it's like um, we're we're pushed to see people in poverty as deserving it, so that we don't feel bad. Uh, and it's, it's the most, like, uh, it's just kind of, it's so dark that we would be, that society would be like, oh, well, those, those people deserve it, but we're, we're better. So we, we can get by. And it's like, geesh, uh, maybe, maybe we should try caring (laughs) just, just to see how it goes. Let's see, like, if we had some empathy, let's just try it for maybe a decade and see what, see what happens. Could be fun. Even if you don't feel it, just say you do. See if that does. See if you don't maybe catch up eventually. <laughs> Take it till you make it. We'll see what happens. So we kind of breeze by um, your your origins. And I know the esteemed audience loves a good origin story. So you're there at Disney when you publish your first book. How long had you been writing at that point prior to that? Um, I So I was writing for myself when I was like eight. I would have stories uh, that I didn't feel real until I wrote them down and I would just write them down in notebooks and not show anyone. They were just entirely for me, for my own enjoyment. Um, and I, at the time I wanted to be an animator because I loved animation. I loved Disney movies. I loved cartoons of all kind. I have no artistic talent whatsoever in that regard. Like I can't draw. I, it's always something I, I probably could have gotten better at if I'd practiced, but I was always just so kind of discouraged by how bad my art was that I, I, I just, I think I love the idea more of the storytelling. Um, so it took me until college to realize that like, uh, and some professors pointed out, like maybe you should try writing a book. Because uh, especially um, my, my writing tended to be a little funny and sort of, uh, or funny for me. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if that humor always translates, but like, uh, I, they, I think they kind of saw that it might translate well, especially to kind of books for, uh, kids or all ages, uh, as I tend to think of them since I'm writing these for myself. Um, so I started writing basically right out of college and it took me six years to get an agent and I quit constantly. Like, and that was, I was still, that was the era where I had to send out self-addressed stamped envelopes to get a response. Um, and so I was mailing out, you know, 20 or 30, uh, basically cover letters to agents sending along anything that they might've asked for. Most of them only wanted a cover letter. Uh, I was trying to take this book that I had spent a year on and uh, just knock it down to like two or three sentences. Uh, I was not very good at that. So it actually, I the six years uh, was a, not a great time. And I constantly thought I was gonna give up and I did give up several times. Uh, I just didn't think it was worth it. And then I lucked into an agent who had heard the day before from an editor that she was looking for fairy tales. So she was like, sure, I'll read your book. And that was one of, I I think maybe like two or three people who were willing to even like take a look at it. So, uh, or or request pages. 
like that's how bad I was at writing cover letters uh, or the, the the pitch letters. So um, yeah, she took a look at it. She ended up um, uh, representing me and uh, it, it didn't take very long after that before someone picked up Half Upon a Time. Um, and since then I kind of worked with that same editor for a very long time and she ended up leaving Simon & Schuster. So I'm, I've stayed with Simon & Schuster for now. Uh, and I really like my new editor. So that's, uh, it's, it's, that six years was so frustrating and, and demoralizing. And I always tell kids when they're asking, uh, I'm like, first of all, practice as much as you can because you'll get better. But always just like the more you persevere and stick with it, like if, if I can get an agent and have everything kind of work out, then anyone can because I was doing everything wrong. Uh, and there's so many easier ways to do it now because you can email, you can go to uh, conventions and festivals and actually meet agents and editors in person and, you know, speak with them and like actually pitch them directly. Sometimes it involves uh, like money and stuff, but um, it's always, there's so many easier ways to do things now. Um, and from other authors who I've spoken to, they're like, yeah, this is, I had a much less difficult time. And it's so much easier just to, to send out emails and to attach things than ever to send out like self-addressed stamped envelopes and then wait for, you know, six months just to see if you get a response. Uh, I, so yeah, uh, hopefully things are a little easier in that way. I'm sure it's also opened up uh, a larger audience to how to do things correctly, which means you're competing with a lot more people for the same attention. Um, and I know from my agent, like the number of submissions that he gets is just uh, mind blowing. So I have no idea how they do that, but uh, it, it's, it's, it's a process and it's not fun, but like it can get you there if you stick with it. And so that's always my advice for kids. Like just, just keep going. Uh, if you, if you feel that love, if you want to write and share your stories, uh, if you love reading and you, you love the idea of being that for someone else, like telling your story, something that you see in your head and they're going to uh, read and, and imagine in their own way. Like there's such a beauty and magic to that. Um, but yeah, it takes a lot of effort to get there. So um, my origin story is, is very much about being persistent. <laughs> and uh, even if you give up, like getting back up and, and trying again, I guess. What's been your favorite uh, so far reader reaction to something you've written? Ooh, um, any kind of fan art has been amazing, especially because I have so little artistic talent, like I said. Uh, seeing um, both, I mean, that takes a love for the characters that they actually wanted to sit down and draw them, uh, but also just like seeing their interpretation of these characters. Like, you know, other than the cover, they may have no sense other, I mean, the cover and my description of the characters, um, but everything else just comes purely from their imagination and just seeing like all the different interpretations is so amazing. I, I think it is entirely because I, I love art so much and have so little talent that I, that's like the nicest thing to see them take the time to actually sketch out or, or, or draw something. And so anytime they send it, I love to like show it off on Instagram and stuff and just be like, do you see? This is amazing. Did you see what this person did? I love it. And everyone should praise them because look at it. It's so cool. Uh, so that's usually my favorite kind of reaction. Um, and then I guess the, the secondary thing would be, you're so mean and you made me cry and I can't wait for the next book. <laughs> like those, <laughs> they, they have to come together. Like they still want to want to keep reading. But uh, yeah, the emotional upset 
reaction is amazing as long as they want to keep going. If they threw the book across the room and were like, I'm never reading you again, that's slightly less good. But that would be, that would be, I guess, slightly impressive too at the same time. You know, I feel like that would still be better than I read the book. Yeah, it's fine. It's yes, hundred percent. That's that's the worst. Uh, I'd rather someone hated it than we're like, I was just bored, or I I couldn't finish it. That's that's never a good sign. <laughs> James Riley, have you ever seen a ghost and or a flying saucer? Um, I I don't know. I've never seen a flying saucer. I have had experiences when I was young where I thought I was seeing ghosts and I thought I was like floating down into my basement from my bedroom and stuff. And I have no idea which, what of that was dreams because I, I just had this memory of it being so clear. Uh, and I would imagine it's all dreams or daydreaming or something. But um, I, I remember looking out the window when I was uh, really young and seeing some kind of creature ghostly kind of supernatural creature across the street uh and showing my parents and then not seeing it so i don't know it's hard to tell but generally i don't believe in that stuff now so i don't know if i'm just doubting myself what i saw i i my i think my interpretation is just like i was a kid and had an active imagination and i would watch horror movies and i would have nightmares for weeks so i'd imagine it was more of that than like uh whether or not I actually saw stuff, but that's that's what I'm going with for now, just to be able to sleep at night. Well, then there's the question of which would actually be scarier, that you saw a monster across the street or that you had a brief psychotic break that could happen again anytime. <laughs> I've never really considered that part. Uh, yeah, that's definitely scarier now. <laughs> <laughs> Things are going fine, but I don't know, a month from now, a year from now, somewhere in there, just another break. Like okay. it was just come back. <laughs> uh, and then uh, I wanted to ask um, uh, if you could work with anything that wasn't in the public domain, any IP at all, um, what would you seize on? What would you like to repurpose? Uh, I mean, I would, I would love to write a Star Wars book, like without even repurposing it, just something I like, I'm, I'm sure they're going to do this, but the ideal would be, to go into Luke's Jedi Academy kind of thing um, that they used to have many books about. And now they've kind of, you know, thrown away some of that to um, to go with the new movies and everything. But like writing that story would be amazing. Uh, like kids going to learn how to be a Jedi from someone who doesn't really know everything. Uh, like just beyond the fact that would be a fun story. Like that would mean so much to me. Uh, to be able to write something like that just because I grew up with Luke as my hero. Um, so I, that kind of thing would be a lot of fun. I would love to work on anything like uh, Sorcerer's Apprentice for Disney, like the, the Mickey Mouse version, not the, um, <laughs> the, the strange live action movie they made. Uh, like any of that would be a ton of fun, but it's, and I would love to write comics someday. Um, Spider-Man comics would be very, very fun. Uh, I've I've put together some proposals for comics, but I've never really kind of gone anywhere with them. I but I I've read Marvel and DC stuff for so many years since I don't know I was probably like ten. So I it would be fun to do just from like a nostalgic reason. Um, 
just to play with those same characters. There's nothing I'd really want to take and like make my own necessarily uh, from something that's not uh, public domain right now. Um, Just because I think growing up with it, it, it feels too real in some ways. Like it doesn't feel like a story that someone wrote necessarily because I was reading them as kids, uh, as a kid, uh, like Spider-Man and stuff. It feels like Spider-Man must exist. And these people are just kind of, uh, recording what happened um, so it, it feels uh, strange to want to go in and kind of like redo that or rewrite it or rethink it uh, whereas something I've encountered as adults as an adult or or just something that I've uh, encountered so many different versions of like fairy tales feels like it's open to new interpretation kind of like we we're talking about earlier so yeah I, I want to play in those universes but I don't necessarily want to like rewrite them Fair enough. If anybody's uh, listening out there that has access to Spider-Man or Star Wars, you heard it here. We shout to James Riley, get in touch with his agent. Let's see if we can make this happen. So um, well, I'm watching our time and it's flown by because it always does when you're having an amazing conversation with somebody who you respect and admire and, and are enjoying talking to. Uh, Thank so thanks so much for, for being an excellent guest and, and, and for making time for us. Sure. Uh, for today, uh, we'll, we'll hopefully we'll get together and we'll do this again. Um, at some point, because you, you've got more books coming, and I, yes. I imagine uh, beyond uh, the, the the Once Upon Another Time series, you're going to have more series for us on down the road. Let's hope. Um, for today, my last question for you is, if you could go back toward the start of your writing career, middle of your writing career, wherever it would have made a difference, and mm-hmm. what might make a difference for everyone uh, who's watching or listening to us now, if you go back and give yourself some advice, what would you go back and tell yourself? Uh, the the biggest thing I've learned is um, to be like gentle with yourself, especially on first drafts. I feel like so many people um, run into uh, disappointment and and like just because things aren't going as easily as they had hoped. They see things so clearly in their head, uh, and then translating that into words on a computer screen is n- it's just an imperfect process, um, and that it only gets better through editing and revising. But you can't get to that part until you've gotten that full first draft down and you get to the end. And like half the time I discover that the story is about something different thematically than I thought it was. So uh, no matter how bad you might think, you know, your previous day's writing was or or like you, you, you're you not sure about the story or where it's going anymore. And like everything that seemed so clear before is now kind of falling apart. Like my best advice is to just be like, it's okay. No one has to read that first draft. It's just for you. It's like building a house. You you build that foundation. It doesn't have to look pretty. It's just going to support the rest of it. So later on, you're going to go back and re-edit or to revise and edit and and create something that actually you are at least a little happier with. So that's that's something I struggle with on every first draft where I'm like, this is terrible. What am I even doing? Uh, <laughs> it's it's been like 15 books of that. So. Uh, I, I always try to encourage people to just be like, that draft is for you. No one else has to see it. It can be absolute garbage. Uh, and then you can shine that garbage up and make it look pretty through future drafts. And that's when you start to show someone. So don't worry if that day's writing went poorly or if like you, you do get those, uh, you get your word count, but it's like, you know, <laughs> half of it is, is just kind of like you rambling on just to get through the day. That's totally okay. That's that's what that first draft is for. Just getting something down, uh, and then once you have that something, you can make it into something good. 
where can an esteemed audience find you online, follow you on social media and all that good stuff? Uh, my website is jamesreillyauthor.com or halfuponatime.com because that's that was my first series. Uh, I am on Instagram under James Riley Author, uh, Twitter under uh, underscore James Riley underscore, though I've been using Twitter less because uh, it's sort of a nightmare site. Um, and then uh, I also have a Tumblr, which is also James Riley Author. My Tumblr actually has more kind of... Um, process stuff and I, every social media site's kind of different so i get vastly different questions on tumblr versus instagram um but uh if you're looking for news instagram is probably the best place as always esteemed audience for interviews with thousands of authors editors literary agents publicists book people the world's best people go to middlegradenentia.com Download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. It will change your life. And God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week. Thank you so much.